Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. On November 18, 1987, a young couple drove their van onto the car ferry on a fall afternoon in Victoria, British Columbia. They had planned on a fun road trip with an overnight stay in Seattle. Jay was using his father's window van to pick up some furnace parts. His girlfriend Tanya packed her camera for the trip. The two eagerly headed south, but they would not return home. Somewhere along the road, they met with a horrific tragedy. A road trip that started innocently would become a cold case that took 35 years to solve. But would justice be served? In this episode, we present the murders of Tanya Van Kylenborg and Jay Cook. And you are listening to True North True Crime. Hello, everyone, and welcome to True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. If you're a longtime listener of the podcast, we want to say a big thank you as we're now going into our third year producing the podcast. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here. So a huge thank you from the both of us. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We're a two-person independent podcast bringing awareness to missing people and victims of violent crime. We are based in Canada and do focus on cases that have a Canadian connection. We always prioritize cases that come directly to us from family members or close contacts of those cases. So if we can help raise some awareness for you, please reach out to us at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. Okay, let's get into this week's episode. So in this episode, we are talking about the murders of Tanya Van Kylenborg and Jay Cook. They were a young couple living in Victoria, British Columbia, but tragically their lives were cut short during a road trip to Seattle in 1987. 
This is a case that took over 30 years to solve and come before a courtroom. We know that this case has been covered by major media outlets. However, there were a couple of court procedures in the last two years that put this case in jeopardy. We wanted to cover this case because there have been some recent updates that listeners might find interesting. As stated, this case has been covered by major TV shows, including The Fifth Estate, America's Most Wanted, 48 Hours, Unsolved Mysteries, and many other true crime TV shows. It has also been the subject of many podcasts and blogs. We put this episode together using publicly available court documents from Washington State, as well as news articles and TV documentaries. As an additional content warning, this episode contains descriptions of sexual assault, rape, torture, and murder. So as mentioned, part of the story is connected to Victoria, British Columbia. Victoria is located on the southern tip of Vancouver Island. It's a beautiful city with ornate lampposts, hanging flower baskets, and historic architecture. The neighborhoods and suburbs of Victoria are filled with tree-lined streets and a mixture of centuries-old homes and new buildings. When standing on the shoreline, you can look out towards the Salish Sea, which ends at the northern coastline of the state of Washington. Mount Baker and Mount Rainier can often be seen on a clear day as reminders of our neighbors to the south in the United States. In the 1980s, when this story takes place, Victoria had a pretty carefree lifestyle. Many hippies and counterculture types from the 60s and 70s moved to Vancouver Island to start their lives. These ideals shaped an easygoing culture in a city that was once a more stuffy kind of town. Jay and Tanya grew up in the suburb towns that surround the city of Victoria and make up the Greater Victoria Regional District. Jay was born on December 16, 1966, and grew up with his family in Oak Bay. His father ran a heating and furnace business. In 1987, Jay was 20 years old, and a couple of years earlier, he had graduated from Oak Bay High School. He was tall with a slim build. In a photo of him at the time, he has long hair and wears several necklaces over top of a dark sweater with stripes. Jay was known to be a quiet guy. He wasn't shy in that sense. He was just a non-confrontational person. He was the kind to walk away from a fight rather than the type to start one. People say he was the kind of person that you really wanted to have in your friend circle. He was one of those guys who would give you the shirt off his back. And Jay's family was the type to wave goodbye to one another until they were out of view from each other. This included when they drove down their long family street. Jay met Tanya when the two were attending Oak Bay High School. And although Tanya was two years younger than him, the two hit it off. But they didn't start dating until she graduated from high school. Tanya was born March 7, 1969. She grew up with her tight-knit family in nearby Saanich, British Columbia, which is a slightly more rural area on the Saanich Peninsula. Tanya had thoughts of being a veterinarian and loved taking care of her golden retriever along with other pets in the family home. Two of Tanya's passions in life were her family and her beloved pets. In high school, she had a large group of friends and was well-known and well-liked. Like many teens, socializing with her friends was a big part and important part of her life. Tanya also played tennis and competed on the Oak Bay senior girls basketball team. Tanya had recently taken up photography and purchased a Minolta X700 35mm camera. Like most people at 18, she had lots of ideas of what maybe she wanted her life to look like but had not made a solid decision yet. 
She graduated from Oak Bay in June 1987, and in her yearbook she wrote, Tanya, also known as Sweetie, would like to be remembered for her fine sense of sarcasm and many different laughs. After grad, Tanya would like to move away from Victoria and become a photographer. Quote, Catch in the movies, ciao babe. After Tanya graduated is when Jay and Tanya began dating. In 1987, Jay was 20 and Tanya was 18, and people say they made a great couple who were clearly in love. In the fall of 1987, Jay was doing some work with his father's heating business. His dad mentioned that he needed to go to Seattle to pick up some furnace parts at a company called Gensco. Jay saw this as a fun opportunity for a road trip, so he asked Tanya if that was something she would be into. She agreed, and the two got ready for a road trip and an overnight stay in Seattle. Like many Canadians, Victoria residents have a symbiotic relationship with their U.S. neighbors. In fact, the vast majority of Canadians live within a two-hour drive of a U.S. entry point. For residents of Victoria who are wishing to travel to Washington State with their cars, there are several options. Because Victoria is on an island, uh, you need to take one of two ferries to get off of the island and then head down to Washington. One of those options involves going through the Greater Vancouver area on the mainland of British Columbia. This is a little bit longer. So many residents of Victoria take the second option. This is a ferry named the MV Coho. This ship leaves downtown Victoria, then sails for 90 minutes across the Salish Sea to the small upstate Washington town of Port Angeles. After arriving in Port Angeles, drivers head to another ferry based in Bremerton, which is about an hour drive away, and then this ferry takes them to downtown Seattle. There is another way to get from Port Angeles to Seattle without the Bremerton ferry. However, this goes through Olympia and adds about an hour onto your trip. So Tanya's parents approved of the trip and the two got ready to head to Seattle. After dating for several months, most of their time was spent at each other's family homes or with friends. So the idea of a road trip together was exciting. Jay's family owned a 1977 Ford Club van. This is one of those typical 70s window vans with the distinct copper brown color and BC plates. On the morning of November 18, 1987, Jay and his father took the seats out of the back of the van to create space for the furnace parts as well as room for Tanya and Jay to sleep. Jay then picked up Tanya, who brought her Minolta X700 35mm camera so she could document the trip. Jay and Tanya then made the drive to downtown Victoria to make their way to the Coho Ferry to eventually get to Port Angeles. They boarded the ferry at 4 p.m., made their way across the Salish Sea to Port Angeles. They disembarked the ship in Port Angeles and cleared U.S. Customs at around 5.30 p.m. They then made their way to Bremerton, and apparently on their way to Bremerton, Jay missed a turnoff and got lost for a little bit, but eventually he got back on track, keeping in mind that there were no cell phones or Google Maps at the time. Witnesses did see the van twice, both times the van was heading south on Highway 101, once in the town of Hoodsport, and then again in the town of Allen. In the town of Allen, they stopped at a local deli at around 9.30 p.m. A fuel receipt later found in the van confirmed that they purchased fuel on the road between Port Angeles and Bremerton. Then at 10.16 p.m., they purchased a ticket at the Bremerton Ferry Terminal. 
the Bremerton to Seattle ferry arrived in Seattle at 11.30 p.m. So it's believed that their plan was to find a place near the Gensco store in South Seattle where the two could spend the night in the van. They had already stopped for snacks, and the van would be a comfy sleep for the night. The Gensco store opened at 8 a.m., so they would have about eight hours to get some rest. While no one can be certain, it is speculated that Jay and Tanya parked the van near the now-demolished Kingdom football stadium. As stated, it was their plan to spend the night in the van, then wake up in the morning and make the eight-minute drive to Gensco in the morning, and then head back up the I-5 to Canada and home. But something went terribly wrong. Investigators believe that whatever happened to Jay and Tanya happened quickly after they parked the van. Evidence suggests that they were still awake and hadn't gone to sleep yet. The investigators believe that if they had gone to sleep, their assailant would not have known they were in the van. Police have stated that they believe the attacker found Jay and Tanya between the hours of midnight and 2 a.m. The next day, Thursday, November 19, 1987, neither Tanya nor Jay's families had heard from them. Both families became immediately concerned. They were both the type to call and always check in. Jay's dad either called or received a call from Jensko in which he found out that Jay had not picked up the parts that he was sent to retrieve. As the day went on and into the evening, both sets of parents became very concerned. Tanya's parents went to the Saanich Police Department to report Jay and Tanya as missing people. At first, the police suggested that maybe they were just late getting home, but maybe the families were incredibly persuasive or maybe it was the look in the parents' eyes. Something changed, and the police agreed that there was something off about this situation. Saanich police reached out to their Seattle counterparts and asked for a be on the lookout or bolo for the young couple and the copper-colored van. Jay and Tanya were now considered missing people. The Seattle police wasted no time in putting out a bolo and an APB or an all-points bulletin to the surrounding police forces. On November 20th, Tanya's family drove down to Seattle and attempted to retrace Jay and Tanya's route. They put up posters and talked to people in the surrounding areas. Now, there's three large counties that surround Seattle, Whatcom County, Skagit County, and Snohomish County. The terrain is varied, and there are many large and small towns that make up the greater Seattle area. Tanya's family asked a friend with a plane to help them out. This pilot flew his plane along the routes that Tanya and Jay may have taken. The copper-brown van that they were in would have been easy to spot from the sky if it was on the side of a highway, but unfortunately the search came up empty-handed. At this point, most people were holding out hope that the couple would be found alive and well. Unfortunately, between November 24th and November 26th, a series of tragic discoveries would end this hope. On November 24, 1987, police received a 911 call from a person who had discovered a body in Skagit County, north of Seattle and south of Bellingham. The following details are quite graphic. Police arrived at the scene and they found a female body discovered down a steep embankment off Parson Creek Road in a rural wooded area. She was nude from the waist down, her bra was pulled up above her breasts, and she had a single close-range gunshot wound to the back of her head. Her hands were bound with plastic zip ties, and a bullet fragment was recovered from her skull. Evidence at the scene suggested that the murder had occurred there. 
There were plastic zip ties found at the scene as well as blood evidence indicating that she was shot there. When police at the scene called the discovery into dispatch, they learned about a Canadian police bolo that had been put out about the missing Canadian couple. Meanwhile, Tanya's brother and father were searching in their car near Seattle. At approximately 7pm, Tanya's father called his wife in Victoria to see if she had heard any news. She told them that Washington police had called to say they had discovered a body. Tanya's family rushed to the medical examiner office where they positively ID'd the body as 18-year-old Tanya Van Kylenborg. This news was devastating for Tanya's family and would begin a fight for justice that lasted decades. For investigators, they still needed to find Jay and the van. However, they wouldn't have to wait long for those answers as two more discoveries were made in the coming days. We are now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we are back. We want to thank you for supporting this week's sponsors, as doing so allows us to continue making this podcast. We also just want to let everyone know that we are currently experiencing a windstorm, so if you hear any wind in the background of this episode, we do apologize. So before the break, we outlined the disappearance of Tanya Van Kylenborg and Jay Cook, a Vancouver Island couple that went on a quick overnight trip to Seattle, and when they didn't return, their families knew something was wrong. They spared no effort to find Jay and Tanya. But tragically, Tanya's body was found on the side of a rural road in Skagit County on November 24, 1987. The following day, November 25th, 60 miles away in the town of Bellingham, which is in Whatcom County, police received another 911 call. Two workers at Essie's Tavern were out back having a break. One of the workers noticed several items on the ground. As the disappearance of Tanya and Jay were widely covered in the media, the tavern workers felt that what they found might be connected to the case. Tucked underneath of the back porch of the bar were Tanya's purse along with her identification, the keys to the van, a pair of surgical gloves, and half a box of ammunition, which was the same caliber ammo used to kill Tanya. 
They also found more zip ties and the lens cap to Tanya's Minolta camera. Detectives arrived and canvassed the area. And parked just one block away, they discovered the copper-colored Ford window van with British Columbia license plates. Inside of the van, detectives found a money order made out to Jensco and a comforter with what appeared to be blood on it found in the rear cargo area. Tanya's pants were also found inside the van with an unknown male DNA profile on them. The next day, November 26, which was the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday, police received another 911 call, this time from Snohomish County, where a body had been discovered. Hunters found a body in brush near a bridge over the Snoqualmie River in Monroe, Washington. Underneath the bridge, wrapped in a blue fleece blanket, responding officers found the body of 20-year-old Jay Cook. Evidence at the scene indicated that he was tortured, beaten, and strangled until he died. Again, the following details are graphic. Jay had numerous wounds to his body. A ligature made from twine and a dog collar was used for strangulation. Evidence also shows that he was beaten with rocks. A wad of tissues and a pack of cigarettes had been shoved into his throat and mouth. This pushed his tongue back into his throat, obstructing his breathing. There were also defensive wounds indicating that Jay had tried to fight back. Based on the evidence found, police surmised that they could be dealing with a serial killer. The evidence of the zip ties, surgical gloves, twine, the dog collar, gun, and ammo suggested a premeditated kill kit and that the suspect could have been hunting for a victim. Keeping in mind this was an era when serial killers like Clifford Olson, Gary Ridgway, and Ted Bundy were hunting women and children in the Pacific Northwest. The theory of the case was that Jay and Tanya had parked the van for the night. Perhaps they stayed up for a bit to chat with the interior light on. Shortly after they parked the van is when the police believed that the assailant approached them with his gun. His intent was to sexually assault Tanya, but in order to do that, police believed that he needed to murder Jay. So he took control of them with the gun and zip ties. He then drove north through Seattle and then to its northern remote counties. The killer then picked two spots, one where he tortured and murdered Jay, leaving him on the side of the road. Then at a secondary spot, he raped Tanya and then murdered her, leaving her on the side of the road. The killer then drove northeast to a third spot in Bellingham where he attempted to discard the van as well as other incriminating evidence. Police also felt that he left the surgical gloves at the scene as a way of taunting the investigators, almost as if to say, you'll never catch me. I didn't leave any prints, and for a long time, he was right. The investigation would go on for decades. Police felt that the location of Jay's body was perhaps a clue. The remote area where he was found was located three-quarters of a mile west of the Monroe Honor Farm, which is part of the Monroe Correctional Complex. As this is a remote area, this led the detectives to believe that perhaps it was a former inmate who was responsible. Police interviewed hundreds of former inmates with violent sex offense records, but they could not isolate a suspect. During this time, the family members began receiving holiday cards and letters from an unknown person claiming to be responsible for the crimes. As the investigation went cold, the case was eventually featured on America's Most Wanted. Thousands of people from around the United States offered up family members, friends, colleagues, and neighbors as potential suspects. None of these panned out. 
a positive that came from the America's Most Wanted feature was that a tip led to the identity of the letter writer. Police arrested a 78-year-old Canadian-born man living in Washington who admitted to writing the letters. His DNA did not match any of the evidence found at the scene, and he was cleared as a suspect. Police indicate that he wrote the letters due to his mental health challenges. In 2015, a 31-year-old woman from Tumwater, Washington, named Chelsea, was looking into her family tree. She realized that she didn't really know her family's history, and in her own words, she could not name a single one of her great-grandparents. So, Chelsea began the painstaking project of building her family tree online, and she did this without the help of DNA. This was all done with photographs, emails, phone calls, and social media. She talked to family members and built a family tree over two years. She learned her family stretched from Washington State through North Dakota and back to Norway. In 2015, she came across some distant second cousins. She had never spoken to these cousins before, and they were the Talbot family from Snohomish County. They had three children, two girls and a boy, who were now all adults. Chelsea was able to reach out to the two female cousins, but was unable to find the third male. That cousin was named William Earl Talbot III, and what she found odd was no one knew how to get in touch with him. It was 2015, and he didn't have any social media presence, no photographs, no LinkedIn, nothing. He seemed invisible. Also in 2015, Chelsea entered a contest to win a free at-home DNA test kit and profile on GEDAncestry.com. Chelsea was ecstatic. Now she could really work on this family tree and was excited about new possibilities and perhaps finding some unknown relatives. Chelsea ended up winning this contest, and she spent a few hours uploading her data to the website after her DNA was complete. Unfortunately, no new relatives appeared, so she forgot about the whole thing for a while and moved on with her life. As many true crime listeners know, in April of 2018, the Golden State Killer was arrested in California after familial DNA was uploaded to an Ancestry website. This was used to arrest and convict Joseph James D'Angelo for the Golden State Killer's horrific crimes. Snohomish County Detective Jim Scharf, who had been working on Tanya and Jay's murder for decades, saw the news of the Golden State Killer arrest and he decided to try it on this case. Detective Scharf reached out to Parabon Nanolabs, a company that had been doing DNA work with his office. He was connected with their genealogy expert, C.C. Moore. Moore had often worked building family trees for people who had been adopted. Within days, they uploaded the suspect DNA from Tanya's pants to GED Match to see if the suspect might have a match from among the less than 1 million users on GED Match. And shockingly, they not only got one match, but they got two. There were two people who shared enough DNA with the suspect to be second cousins. And one of those was Chelsea. CeCe Moore was able to build a genetic family tree using some of Chelsea's information. Now, it was here that they found the name William Earl Talbot III, a truck driver from Snohomish County and Chelsea's second cousin, the one who she couldn't find any contact information for. They were able to learn that in 1987, when the murders happened, Talbot lived seven miles from where Jay's body was found, and that he was 24 years old at the time of the killings. Talbot was never a suspect in the murders and had a relatively uneventful criminal record throughout his life. 
As a result of the DNA revelations, Detective Scharf and undercover officers surveilled Talbot for a number of weeks. One day, while following his vehicle, Talbot threw a coffee cup out of the window. Detectives collected the coffee cup and entered it for testing. Talbot's DNA from the coffee cup matched the male profile from Tanya's pants and the rape kit. Based on this match, police arrested Talbot at his job site in May of 2018. First, he was charged with Tanya's murder. Those charges were later upgraded to two counts of aggravated first-degree murder of both Jay and Tanya. The trial began in June 2019, almost 32 years after the murders. The prosecution's case relied entirely on the DNA evidence, DNA technology, and the fact that they originally received his DNA from a discarded coffee cup. In opening arguments, the prosecution explained exactly how they got the evidence and exactly how this type of open-source DNA research became a tool for investigators. Genetic genealogy, the prosecutor said, simply gave law enforcement a tip like any other tip that they follow up on. The defense did not attempt to argue the case in their opening. In their own opening statements, the defense did not challenge how detectives came to believe that Talbot was a suspect. Instead, they said the presence of the DNA does not make their client a killer, but didn't explain at this point how Talbot's DNA ended up on Tanya's clothing. The defense also said the evidence doesn't explain how the couple spent their final days or with whom, as if to imply that Talbot was invited to hang out with them. They spent their opening statements humanizing Talbot. They would describe him as a blue-collar guy who had worked in construction and as a truck driver, who lived a quiet, unremarkable life and just lived in work and that's all he'd ever done. At trial, the state presented that Tanya had been murdered after she was raped and that Jay's death was directly related to Tanya's rape and murder since they were known to have been traveling together. The state submitted graphic photos of the couple's bodies, the scenes in which they were discovered, and the autopsies of the victims. There was testimony as to the DNA swabs and other forensic evidence collected from the van. The state relied on this testimony as support for its theory that rape was the motive that led to the murders. The defense presented its case. Talbot, who pleaded not guilty, claimed that the semen found at the crime scenes was from consensual sex with Tanya. The defense stated that the DNA at the scene does not equate to murder. Talbot did not take the stand in his own defense. After eight days of testimony and closing arguments, the jury was sent to deliberate. The following is from an article from Herald.net about what happened inside the jury room. Quote, on the whiteboard, the jury drew a line to represent how long Jay would have been alive and a shorter line for Tanya. Over days, jurors came to believe that there was a small window of time when the pair most likely met their killer. The eight hours or so between when the ferry docked in Seattle and the time the store opened in the morning. In a compressed timeline, it did not make sense that Tanya would consent to unprotected sex with a random stranger, then encounter a random stranger who killed her with a gun and happened to leave no DNA behind. Once that was established, it seemed absurd that Talbot could be part of one killing, but not the other. They saw no evidence to suggest that the pair had split up. After three days of pragmatic deliberation by this jury, Talbot was found guilty on two counts of aggravated first-degree murder and sentenced to two sentences of life in prison without parole. It's very important to note that afterwards, in a private debriefing, the jury was informed of a major piece of evidence that the state hadn't been able to present at trial. 
zip ties found inside the couple's van had tested as a possible match for Talbot's DNA. In the recent months before the trial, the state crime lab had obtained new equipment that was better at testing mixed samples of DNA. Results came back in the middle of the trial, and out of caution, the prosecutors did not want to put that evidence in front of a jury. So there was even more DNA evidence that Talbot was involved. This is where the story ends for many people who had followed or covered this case. But unfortunately, there was still more legal wrangling to come. Talbot appealed his conviction. Not on the evidence, and not on the trial or any type of legal infraction, no. Talbot appealed his conviction on the grounds that one of the jurors admitted that they may not be able to be impartial during the trial. So this case went back to court. Now, here's some of the exchanges from juror number 40, who the defense claimed showed bias during jury selection. Juror 40. Okay, I grew up in a single-parent household, and my mother was the victim of a lot of domestic abuse. So, while I am able to reasonably set aside my own, I guess, experiences in life, I just wanted to put that out there because I don't know how I would feel being shown evidence of something that could bring up memories that I've worked to get rid of. Defense counsel. Okay, so do you think that that would affect you to the point where you think you could not be fair and impartial in assessing the evidence to this case as to both the state and Mr. Talbot? Juror 40. To be honest, I feel like I wouldn't know until the time came. But I also have a daughter, and I think that also might play a part in how I might feel. If there was some action taken towards a young woman, I might take that personally and not be able to be impartial. Defense counsel. So from our perspective, what we're doing, we're looking to find jurors who can just assert that they could be fair and impartial in a case like this because of the difficult subject matter. You've indicated that because of your experience, both as a daughter and a mother, that this case might not be the kind of case for you. Juror 40. Yeah, based on what I read in the questionnaire that we were given, there was a small section that referenced seeing potentially graphic evidence. And that's where I don't know if looking at photos of people I don't know might allow me to be impartial. However, I don't know if a flood of emotion might come over me if I were to look at pictures that were very graphic or made me think, what if this was my loved one, or this looks similar to something that I saw previously in my life and could cloud my judgment. The following is from the prosecution questions of juror number 40 during the original jury selection. Prosecutor, the question is, do you think that you can take anything that happened to your mother, anything that could potentially happen to your daughter, and set those things aside, listen to the evidence, look at the evidence, and come to a conclusion at the end just based on the evidence that you hear in the courtroom. Juror number 40, I could try. Prosecutor, okay. Juror number 40, I can't guarantee anything, right? Prosecutor, no, and I think that's that's a fair way to put it, especially when you're dealing with things like this. Juror number 40, I could try. So, December 7th, 2021, the court sided with Talbot's legal team, judging that the juror had, in fact, shown bias. This overturned Talbot's conviction, essentially rendering him not guilty of these crimes. Talbot remained in custody after his conviction was overturned. The state prosecutor then appealed to the state Supreme Court. All the while, the state prosecutor prepared for another trial. But on December 22, 2021, the Washington Supreme Court reinstated Talbot's conviction. The following is from the Vancouver Sun. 
the Washington State Supreme Court unanimously rejected the defense arguments that William Talbot III should be granted a new trial due to one juror's alleged bias, concluding that the defense attorneys could have dismissed the juror of the trial, but opted not to. Under questioning in jury selection, the woman expressed doubts about her ability to be impartial. Still, she said she would try to be fair, and she said she would try to be a fact-based person. Talbot's defense attorneys did not use their option to excuse her. Chief Justice Mary Yu stated, quote, We reaffirm that if a party allows a juror to be seated and does not exhaust their preemptory challenges, then they cannot appeal on the basis that the juror should have been excused for cause. The Supreme Court came to a 9-0 decision on this appeal, thus reinstating Talbot's guilty conviction. Talbot has been in custody since he was arrested in 2018, and he is currently at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. While it seems that justice may have finally been served, there are several more appeals in the works for Talbot. The case is next expected to return to the State Court of Appeals to address other legal questions raised by the defendant. Talbot's attorneys also have made arguments about insufficient evidence, the inadequacy of the police investigation, and a series of other alleged missteps at trial. Talbot, to this day, maintains his innocence. Over the last 35 years, Tanya's brother John has been an outspoken supporter of seeking justice for his sister. He has appeared on many documentaries and attended the trials and appeals. It's been a long journey from the day that John, along with his father, identified Tanya's remains. We hope that justice prevails for these families. Chelsea, whose family tree helped solve this case, also attended the trial and has become a supporter of the Cook and Van Kylenborg families. Cece Moore, whose skills took just two hours to identify Talbot, has since identified hundreds of suspects for investigators using DNA and genealogy. Memorials were held for Tanya and Jay at the Interfaith Church at the University of Victoria with hundreds of people attending. Tanya has since been laid to rest in Ross Bay Cemetery in Victoria, and Jay's ashes were spread at Fulford Harbor on Salt Spring Island. A memorial post in the 1988 Oak Bay High School yearbook read, There is nothing so touching as two young people in love. Tanya and Jay had so much ahead of them, so much to live for. Their love of life shone radiantly in her smile and in his eyes. That's all for this episode. Thank you for joining us. We will be back soon with a new episode. So until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.